here at the office and when I go to bed, and, and I probably count on one hand over all these years how many times I've done something out of the ordinary on Saturday, and it has to be pretty extraordinary. This was the weekend of the apologetics symposium up in Bangor that I was invited to several months ago that I committed to. And, I mean, I knew what I was getting into, but I didn't really know, actually, I didn't know at all who the participants were going to be in this. And this wasn't a sit down and listen to somebody lecture to you. This was, uh, in the words of Daryl Whitmer, who was uh, the gentleman with uh, A2A, the ministry that put on the Ravi Zacharias presentation last week, uh, last year of where, you know, why Jesus. And little did I know that um, Rittenhouse, who has spoken here from Ravi Zacharias Ministries, uh, he was there. And again, this was all just a, like a, a, a from Friday afternoon till Saturday evening at four o'clock, um, just getting together and talking about how to make apologetics more approachable and more uh, vibrant and more applicable to the local church. And if you're wondering what in the world is apologetics, it's not a study of how many ways you can say you're sorry. Okay, I mean, that's almost what it sounds like. Uh, But then again, to quote that famous theologian, see how many of you recognize this ridiculous quote, love means never having to say you're sorry. Love story. You're dating yourself. You should be dating your wife. Oh, Anyway, yeah, um, yeah. That, by the way, that's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in the history of mankind. But it, yeah, why do those things stay with you? But anyway, so all we really, I mean, all we did was sit on our hind ends and think great thoughts. And I should say that's what everybody else did. Okay, I was like this uh, this guppy um, in this aquarium of great white sharks with. IQs of, you know, over 200, and at least it seemed that way. And uh, Dick and Marty Kies, who are the proprietors, they were the heir apparents of those of you who remember Francis and Edith Schaefer back in the days of whatever happened to the human race, mid-70s, that worldwide tour that they did. And uh, anyway, the Kies are, are uh, doing Labrie Fellowship in Massachusetts, and all these Ph.D. types and people with minds that are just unbelievable, the things that they call up. Uh, at one point, Daryl Whitmer would say, you know, we were on a particular topic. and say, okay, anybody have any uh, really good books that they've read in the, you know, in the last lifetime that you could suggest for this particular subject? And these guys, the guy sitting next to me, who's Bill Johnson from First Baptist in Pittsfield, who's got a Ph.D. from Birmingham, U.K., not Birmingham, Alabama, he sits there and goes, well, there's this book by so-and-so and so-and-so, and this book by 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 so-and-so. Pages 83 for 96 are particularly poignant on that issue. And I'm like, I'm trying to remember my grandchildren's names, okay? So anyway, I also had committed, before knowing any of this, to bringing the devotional on Saturday morning. So I was sitting there, and my heart's going like this, and Daryl was next to me, and this is the only time, you know, you're up at this front table. And I looked at him, and I said, do you have any idea how intimidating this is? He said, (laughs) and I'm like, yeah, okay. 
I have no, don't ask me what I talked about. I have no idea. I don't know. I would just, I knew I had 10 minutes and I was just praying, Lord, let 10 minutes come now. Lord, I may have been saying that. I don't know. And they, these guys would all be going, and women, they'd be going, ooh, that's heavy. Let me consider the time continuum of the space. And they started talking about artificial intelligence. Okay, toward the end, this is toward the very end of the conference when I'm just like, I just got to go, let me go to get a nap in. And they're talking about the philosophy of artificial intelligence with uh, the new machines now they have that can determine, uh, they can make decisions at snaps of the moment, like as to who to kill. This was a military application with these robots, and, 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 but, but talking about the philosophy of it all. And, and I'm just sitting there going, so anyway, all that is to you're like, what is this about? All that is to say is that I am absolutely wiped out. And uh, I even, <laughs> I use earplugs up here off and on when it's appropriate. And I took one of my earplugs out and it flew out of my hand. And when I went to catch it in the air, I hit it somewhere, who knows where. And so if you saw me during the non-singing times, kind of like I'm desperately looking for my earplug. Did I take the other one out? I did take them out. Anyway. All that is to say is that I am wiped out, and if this makes no sense at all, then you can blame Daryl Whitmer and email him about that. So, We are finishing up, if I ever shut up and get going, we are finishing up the message that started two weeks ago. So this is number three, and this is the conclusion that we will get through if the Lord does not return in the midst of it, which I am frankly am hoping that he does. So our key text this morning is Galatians chapter 5. I want to start by talking about one of the, the top ten, really, as I think back to all my years in ministry. But what are some of the, like the, the top ten, if I had to list, what were the top ten issues or questions that people have come to me about over the years? Certainly one, of the, in, the, one in, those, in that top ten there would be the, the, the true believer who's asking me for counsel on how to deal with a family member who claims ardently to be a Christian but bears little resemblance to it. And when you actually start playing out as a Christian, meaning doing the things that Christians do, like, you know, could, could we, like, maybe pray before the Christmas meal? You know, pray. And so there's this cognitive dissonance. What well, you're supposed to be a Christian. You've got all this stuff. And, you know, it's, it's a, how many of you just have ever been in that situation or are in that situation? Yeah, this is, this is not an uncommon problem, you know. And you always, don't you get the feeling that when invitations go out for anything and, and, or just a phone call, you're sitting there thinking, oh, yeah, they're only doing this because I'm family. You know, they're all hoping with their fingers crossed that we well, hope those religious ones don't come. And again, the irony of that is, is they describe themselves as religious people, as Christians, and so, again, it's kind of hard to, to wade through those waters. The fact is they, they may go to church, maybe Christmas and Easter. They may, depending on the kind of church that they're at, they may even go somewhat regularly, like once a quarter. Or, more often than not, they haven't been to church in probably since they were children. But by Gari, they are Christians. And they certainly don't read the Bible, they don't hold to what used to be common knowledge called the Judeo-Christian ethic. That is, the, those common uh, traditions and traits that guide our culture that find their origins in 
the Judeo, the Old Testament, Christian, the New Testament portions of the Bible. That used to be the governing ideology of America. But, of course, we are long past those days. And they don't even hold to those. And, in fact, they always seem to be of anyone in your family. Those who are claiming to be that Christian, they seem to be more open and more supportive of almost every ideology and value and cultural change under the sun except those which actually reflect biblical values or virtues. Well, so when the Christ-following family member brings something up, along the lines of social or cultural mores, there's this rabid disagreement, of course, that starts in. And sometimes there's strong and even vociferous arguments and accusations start flying toward the true Christian person from the so-called Christian member of the family. And they're never complimentary. So what happens is is that the real Christ follower retreats, not infrequently an outcast, amidst their own supposedly Christian relatives. You see, for many individuals wearing the name of Christian, if there is any understanding of the concept of salvation by grace through faith it is just enough to be dangerous or in the words of my old sensei a sensei is the guy who's your instructor and your leader at the local dojo which is a place where people go to learn karate or in my case to get the snot beat out of you and so uh, yeah, some of you will really be able to re- relate to this. So I'm this brand newbie. I was in the army, so I was young. I was robust. I could take, you know, I could take some pretty good beatings and everything. At this time in my life, I would never think about doing it now. So I would go there, and by the, I don't know, maybe the the second month or so, you know, you're kind of getting uh, proficient at least in certain blocks and all of this stuff and everything else. And then the sensei would determine that, okay, where we're at in our instruction is you're ready now to start actually putting this into practice in the dojo in, what, in an exercise that he would call continuous line takedown. Let me describe it for you. So whoever was there at the, in the dojo that night, there were usually at least six people, but more often there were about 15 other guys usually. And what he'd do is he would have, he would select one. I mean, we all get your turn. We all get our turns. But he would select first the person who's it. And the person who's it stands there, and you're on the mats, the tatami as they're called. And you're on the mats there, and you just kind of stand there getting ready. And now you've got everyone that's there in the dojo in a single file line, maybe starting four feet in front of you. And the way the exercise works is that every individual in that line is allowed to throw one, just one punch or one kick. That's it. And so as they are making their way, coming this way toward me, there's no time lag between them. It's continuous. And so you don't know what's coming. You don't know if there's a punch coming or if there's a kick coming or everything. And you cannot move other than to stand there and to block and defend. Well, let me tell you something. Okay? If there were 12 guys there, if I was having a good night at the beginning of all of this, I maybe was able to, you know, parry and block three of whatever was coming at me. The rest were all landing in various parts of my body. And so I remember going home on one particular night. (laughs) And I said to Barb, no, this was 19, probably 1974. And I was paying $35 a month 
for these lessons. In 1974, on a military salary. And I came home one night and I said, honey, <laughs> I said, you realize that we are paying $35 a month for me to have the snot beat out of me every week? And I just thought about the, the irony of that. Why do guys do stupid stuff? I, it's, it's, we're victims. It's the way we were made. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, Bill Josidas, who was, uh, who was our sensei, sensei of national renown, um, had to throw that in there. He was the disciple of Ken Knutson, top 10 world ranking. In black. Anyway, shut up, Bill. Go, talk. So anyway, he would say at, at certain, we'd get certain weeks down the road now in continuous lying takedown and getting some, some real proficiency there. And so you know what happens with proficiency. We'd be bad now. Okay? So you just kind of leave the dojo, just looking for somebody to look at you crossway. Yeah. Well, Bill Josiah, having been in this for many years, would take us, stand us all now in line, and he'd say, now listen to me. He says, I want you to remember this. He says, you know just enough now to get yourselves killed. <laughs> and I was like, point taken. Got it. You're not as cool and hot as you think you are, you know. Well, anyway, we knew just enough to be dangerous, especially to ourselves. And you see, for many, many Christians, unfortunately, and it's even getting worse and worse, it seems, as the days go on, the salvation message to which many Christians are exposed today, while containing certainly partial truth, is presented in such a lopsided way as to, in essence, be false and to be dangerous. Now, add to this the fact that the overwhelming majority of Christians today are biblically illiterate. Whatever James, going back to last week and the week before, and even the week before that, because Pastor Brent was the one that started uh, to open this can of worms, whatever James has to add to the bigger picture of salvation by faith through grace is unknown to them. And because Paul seems to say the exact opposite, not infrequently, James' take on it is avoided by teachers either because of fear or because of ignorance of themselves, not knowing how to handle the apparent contradictions. Well, by way of review, and this is all review, what is it that James writes in chapter 2 of that book by his name in the New Testament? James chapter 2, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? That's verse 14. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. That's verse 17. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Verse 20. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Verse 24. And for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Verse 26. And there in 12 verses in James chapter 2, five times he repeats the same theme. And so a reasonable person, I believe, would conclude that James is obviously trying to drive home a point. 
a point that's so important that he doesn't want it to be missed. But of course, it isn't James who's really trying to get that point across if we believe in the doctrine of inspiration because we know it's not James just kind of figuring what he wants to write on that day or say, but rather the Holy Spirit is superintending what is being written so that only what God wants to be written is what is actually put down by way of thought and doctrine and example and everything else. So then when we read biblical examples of those people in the Bible who are highlighted for demonstrating their faith by their works, you have to conclude one of two things. Either the book of James shouldn't be in the Bible, which some have contended over the history of the church, but we dismiss that. Or there is a perfectly reasonable way to see that what James writes And what Paul writes and what the writer of Hebrews writes is actually completely harmonious. And last week I explained how the three of these are completely unified without any contradiction. And if you have missed that or the ones before it, I strongly encourage you to listen to it, which you can get online at our website. Now what I find interesting is the way that all three of the writers use the name And they use the same name and the same person's life's experience to prove their point. Paul, in Romans chapter 4, says no one is saved by works of righteousness. And then he starts by using Abraham as, as an example of that assertion. Abraham, having been declared by as righteous by God because of his faith, was declared so by his faith, Paul is ardently pointing out, and not because of his works, not because of his good deeds, not because of anything that he did or had to offer. But then you come to James, and James turns around, and he also uses Abraham, but he uses Abraham to demonstrate his assertion that Abraham, in fact, wasn't saved only by faith, but also by works or by good deeds or doing things that are pleasing to God. And then you add on top of that, Yet a third opinion that chimes in, and that's the writer of Hebrews, who also uses Abraham, acknowledging that while Abraham, in fact, did have a wavering faith in God, his faith compelled him to live it out, meaning giving evidence by his good works and practical righteousness. Using James's own lingo, his faith, that is Abraham's faith, compelled him or basically made it in such a way that he could not resist but to allow the Spirit to begin working through him to do those things that are right and good in the sight of God. So, all right, here we go. There's a hidden little test in here, but it's not a big one, as you'll see. Allowing the Bible to interpret the Bible, which is what? It is the number one rule of good hermeneutics. What is hermeneutics? It's not Herman's hermits. It's hermeneutics. How many of you know who they are? Oh, see, that's why. First service. Even the people out back went, I don't think anybody's ever heard of Herman's hermits. They're like, well, it kind of doesn't surprise me, you know. Anyway, hermeneutics. It's not hermeneutics. It's 
hermeneutics, which is the process of both exegeting Scripture, expositing it, and pulling it all together and pulling out what is actually in the Bible and then crafting it into a message. That is what is hermeneutics. And the number one key of hermeneutics, as I said, is letting the Bible interpret the Bible. Now, it's fairly easy to see that Paul addresses the unilateral work of God on man's behalf by simply decreeing, by declaring that an individual is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, not because of something he's done, but because of Jesus. It's a righteousness that is bestowed. It is not a righteousness that is earned. And again, we learned last week that's what is called justification. And then that person who actually accepts that and says, yes, Lord, heck yeah, okay, yes, I do. The person who receives justification is then given the Holy Spirit, not sometime down the line, but the moment they actually believe. And the Holy Spirit now comes into that individual and compels them and empowers the justified one to begin cultivating, in the words of Scripture, fruit. Fruit being the evidence that justification by faith has indeed taken place. It is the proof, it is the assurance that that individual has in fact received salvation through faith by God's grace. Well, that then begs the question. Thinking now about that relative that I talked about in the opening, that family member who claims the Christian faith, And more important, though, now I want to think about our own faith. And here it is. Here's the question that is begged. Is fruit indispensable to salvation? Listening to Paul, we know that our salvation comes by faith through grace. And he even says categorically, not of yourselves. Even that faith is the gift of God. And Paul notes to Titus that it's not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to God's mercy, he saved us. So again, if you think about Paul and you answer his fruit indispensable to salvation, you'd be inclined to say, no, then you're putting it something dependent upon man. Well, what about what James says? Well, James says just that opposite. James says, I've already read the passages, clearly that faith, if it doesn't have the evidence and manifested in in good works and in doing things that are pleasing unto God, then justification, salvation never really took place. Well, what does Jesus say? Well, in the parable of the vineyard uh, that Jesus told uh, a parable about a man who, and it's just a made-up story, okay? He he says, I'm telling you this this made-up story to make a point. And there was a vineyard, and the vineyard owner put managers over it, and then the vineyard owner went off on vacation somewhere for an extended period of time. Well, those who were working the vineyard, who actually would pay the vineyard owner to work his vineyard in his absence, they decided, hey, man, we haven't seen the vineyard owner in ages. So you know what we're going to do? Let's just get rid of his managers, meaning let's kill them, and then the vineyard will be ours. We have no idea where the vineyard owner is, and he probably doesn't care anyway. He's never coming back. Well, the vineyard owner, of course, finds out about this, and he says, wow, shucks and by golly, I'm going to send my own son. Surely they will respect my own son. And he sends his son to the vineyard, and the the son, the 
owner's son is met by the workers of the vineyard where they also kill him. So that's the backdrop now for what I'm going to say. The next thing that that Jesus says in Matthew 21, beginning verse 43, is, Therefore I say to you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. But that's not all Jesus says. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit He takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear even more fruit. And then again in Matthew 7, uh, 13, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from from thorn bushes, nor are figs gathered from thistles, are they? So every good tree that bears good fruit, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. And then Jesus says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Good fruit, they're identified. Bad fruit, they're identified. Or no fruit is also an indication as we'll hear more about. Continuing in Matthew 7, 19, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, think about the family member who claims, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Meaning not the one who talks about fruit, but the one who has fruit. And then again, there's the Apostle Paul who weighs in in Colossians Chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now here it is, and this is important, and I have to parse this a little bit grammatically for you. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge and description of God. Now what follows after that is again another great uh, explanation of justification. Now, for the rest of our time, I want to use it to use the biblical description of what good fruit looks like and where it comes from because the Bible tells us with some General specificity, I made that up. See, that's kind of an oxymoron. General specificity, really? That's like rehearsed spontaneity. Yeah, it doesn't work. But I like that, general specificity. I know what I mean. And I also want you to understand that what we're going to look at this morning from the book of Galatians is not exhaustive concerning fruit. As someone said, We are all called to be fruit inspectors. 
And while the Pharisees loved being fruit inspectors, meaning they loved going around and pointing out everybody else's flaws and their missteps and pronouncing judgment on them because of those flaws and those missteps, they would never inspect their own fruit. And in fact, they were incapable of doing so because they didn't even understand the standard, but instead made themselves the standard of what constitutes good fruit. And so, of course, they always look good when you are the standard of what is good fruit. Now, in what I'm going to read here, you might notice something that I found quite interesting, and I never noticed it before, as we continue to pursue the descriptions of biblical fruit. And again, understand that fruit here is just another word for doing good works. Okay? Let me see if you notice. It's okay if you don't. I really don't expect you to. I mean, it's only taken me 43 years to realize this. From Galatians 5, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Did you see it? Didn't expect you to. None of the fruits that are listed here as being fruit of the Holy Spirit are the doing kinds of things that we routinely think about being fruit, being good works, those things that we do, helping little old ladies across the street. I don't know why we keep using that example. It's so stupid. When's the last time or ever have you helped a little old lady across the street? But doing good things, doing nice things, doing things that are pleasing to God. Mayo, you better not have just looked at your wife. Were you... That was a joke. Mic on? Yeah. None of the fruits that are listed here in Galatians 5 are verbs, meaning action, meaning doing something. Instead, they are all nouns. And they are nouns that have an adjectival force. And what do adjectives do? Adjectives describe something. These are all nouns but they are nouns that describe the character of an individual. The fruits of the Spirit are identifying the qualities of a true Christ follower's character. Now, when James says that faith without works is dead, we tend to think about those doing kinds of things. Pray, serve, reach. The things that we've been talking about and Pastor Ben talked about a little bit during the announcements. These are all works for sure. Yet we have all known people over the years who were focused on doing kinds of good works. The do, you know, the doing kinds that we think of. The highly visible kind. The kind that get you noticed. The kind that earn you applause from they, them, and those. But so what? I mean, the Pharisees excelled at that. They, excelled, they were known and thought to be so holy because of the way they appeared by their actions out in public. But even Jesus said of their character that their hearts, the essence of who they truly are, were far from God. And so the Holy Spirit defines works that are real in the fullest sense of the word. Again, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
They are the works that are evident. How, though? They're the works that are evident in changed attitudes. They are works that are evident in changed ideals, in changed values, in changed morals, in changed goals, and in changed lives. Not merely changed behaviors, which are the doing kinds of things. Because those doing kinds of things can all be counterfeited. And the church of Jesus Christ is replete with all kinds of examples throughout the history of Christendom, of religious leaders who played such a good game on the outside and and even had visible fruit. And then the scandal erupts months or years down the road in their ministry of the worst kinds. And since there is an ordo salutis, we talked about that last week, It means the order of salvation, justification first, sanctification comes right after, almost instant, well, instantaneously with, but after, but after is only in our mind because we are bound by time. God is not. Anyway, listen to that message. A lot clearer than what I just said it just then. But I'm today suggesting that maybe since there's an ordo salutis, there should be an order, an order, (laughs) I can't even say it, an ordo frutis meaning an order of fruit. And you'll see why I'm saying that. Now this, of all the things that were said yesterday, the one thing that blew Nathan Rittenhouse's mind, if his facial expression meant anything at all, is I I got very bold at one point and I was offering my uh, ignoramus kinds of uh, suggestions about something or whatever. And I happened to mention the Ordo Frutus. It's made up. I made it up. And I had already prefaced the Ordo Salutis. So you see, coordinating the Ordo Salutis, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, baby, I love that stuff. And then when I mentioned the Ordo Frutis, it was like, like, what? You know that guy, the little emoji, we hit, right, with the big eyes that go, anyway, maybe you don't. And I reassured him, I said, I made it up. And then he was like, oh, for a moment, he's like, what, there's something in the universe I don't know? Where did that come from? And said, no, have no fear. It all came from me. Well, you'll see what I mean by the order of fruit. First, within us, once we are justified and the Holy Spirit now takes place in us, he begins working this change in us. Again, repeat from last week about sanctification. But first comes, first, the order of fruit. First comes character change. And character change is invisible. You know, you can't see me change an attitude. You can see the outworking of that, perhaps, but you can't see me change an attitude. You can't see me change a goal until I start doing something about that. Change of character is invisible. And then the doing things come about which are visible so this is why the process of sanctification we talked about last week is all internal and yet there will be there has to be there must be external meaning visible evidences and so paul continues with his list as the backdrop now those who belong to christ jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Well, what does that mean? 
Does that mean the first time we encounter whatever the particular temptation happens to be is we go, "Uh uh-oh, oh, man, I blew it. Okay, Lord, truly, I am sorry. You know, I don't want to do that. I don't want to think that. Whatever it is, now help me not to do that again. And if you're like, I think, most people who are truly trying to grow in the grace and love and, and knowledge of Christ, you have success. Maybe for a longer time, maybe for a shorter time than what happens. You get hit by the same thing, and you fall again. And you say, okay, Lord, and maybe you take precautions, and you put whatever it has to do. There's growth, though, so that the distance between those, those stumbles into that sin become fewer and fewer between. Okay? That is what Paul means here, and you know this by the grammar that he uses, an aorist active indicative. It has a punctiliar meaning, as it's called in, in Greek grammar, meaning you do it here, you truly do re- repent, you do, truly do turn from it, you do make progress, but then, boom, you fall again somewhere down the line. You crucified the flesh here. But then the flesh, the old man, the old nature, the old woman creeps up again and you fall again. You repent of it. You truly do repent of it. You don't just go, I'm sorry. Now how can I do it again? But you struggle and you fight and you make more progress this time and might get farther down. And then you do it again. That's called a punctiliar or the aorist indicative sense of what Paul is referring to when he says Christians are to be involved in crucifying the flesh. It's not a one-time thing. Boom, I did it. I repented of it. Never more to look back. I will never sin again. Oh, if only that were the case. Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, internal, the invisible, let us also walk by the Spirit. And that, by the way, is an imperative. It means it's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a maybe. It is, if we are living by the Spirit, which is internal and invisible, you must Walk by the Spirit, which is, again, an order and a command, which is external and it is visible. Let us not become boastful, provoking one another, envying one another. Why not? Well, outside of the obvious, because it's a contradiction in terms of what it means for the individual to truly be saved. Such behaviors by Christians have no place in the life of someone who has the Holy Spirit living within them. And if you need now some examples of what exactly are you talking about, what are those behaviors or things that are within us that have no place inhabiting even the realm of the Christian, he tells us in Galatians 5:19 through 21, just preceding the gifts of the Holy Spirit or the fruits of the Holy Spirit. What he says is, now the deeds of the flesh, they're evident. Well, what are they? Immorality, that's porneia, that's a broad group of sexual sin, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. How'd that one get in there? That doesn't seem all that serious. There it is. Outbursts of anger, disputes. Really? That's a work of the flesh? Oh, you betcha. Dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who, again, a little lesson in grammar, that those who practice such things, which is a present active indicative participle, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what's the significance of that particular grammatical consideration? Well, I don't know about you, but I can look at this list and I can go, okay, currently, as I stand before you today, either in the past week or maybe the past couple of weeks, uh, um, 
boom, yeah, guilty of that one. Uh, yeah, depending on how you interpret it, guilty of that one. Um, and probably guilty of that one too, okay? But when I am convicted about that, which I faithfully am because the Holy Spirit, that's one of his functions in living within the believer, I don't just go, oh, dear God, I'm sorry. Now I look for an opportunity to do it again or to fall or to stumble or whatever it is. Oh, I know I have an issue with anger. So I'm going to enter into the most rabid, ridiculous, insane conversation argument that's going on in my workplace just so I can get in there, so I can get my temper up and going. No, the Bible says flee from temptation. If you know that's an area of weakness, don't embrace it. Run from the temptation. But what Paul is talking about here, about those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean the one who is struggling and really trying to grow and in fact is growing, though with fits and starts. It is the one who practicing such things in the present acting of addictive means to know, to see, to understand, and is saying, well, who cares, and embracing it and practicing it, doing it repeatedly as an habitual situation. Well, it makes perfect sense then that he would say, well, such individuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because it is antithetical to the justification, sanctification process and the Holy Spirit living within the true believer. There has to be, must be, will be fruit. And if there isn't fruit, and one of those fruits is growing in the grace and in the practical realities of walking in obedience. And if that isn't there, and it means you're not saved. Don't get too hung up on that, but in another sense, I want to say, yeah, get hung up on that if the Spirit is convicting you about that. Good fruit, godly fruit, are core changes in one's sin-tainted makeup, which is all of us. It talks about, or it means godly fruit shows core changes within our character and it is then out of our character and out of those changes that have taken place in my heart and mind, which simply means, again, basically my soul, what comes out of that is godliness, is godly behavior, godly action, godly thoughts, godly values, godly morals, godly behaviors. I mean, Jesus said out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we can muster up a good work or two here and there, but if the heart is not right, if we are not being changed at a soul-deep level, then we're not walking in the Spirit, but we are, in fact, as Paul describes, walking in the flesh. All right, in closing, Peter adds another word. After talking about living with fruit in your life, he writes in chapter 4, Above all, it's an important beginning of that, of what follows. Meaning, okay, now, you've heard everything that I've said about fruit and in your life and everything else, but now let's go to what's the top, what needs to be at the apex of all of that fruit stuff and our behaviors and everything else. Beyond everything else, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And both of the words there for love are the same. They are the agape 
kind of love, which is the love that God has for mankind, which is a totally selfless love that does things totally and solely for the behalf and the good of somebody else, regardless of the cost to you personally or with no, uh, with no benefit to you. That is agape love. And Peter, inspired by the Spirit, says, more than anything else, this is the way you are supposed to love one another. Why? Because that kind of love covers a multitude of sins. Now think back to the list of, of, of the fruits of the flesh. You know, dissensions, outbursts of anger, factions, rivalry, comparisons, arguments. This, and I got to tell you, the no, maybe not the most, one of the most, yeah, maybe it is the most, discouraging elements of pastoral ministry over the years is to come to find out why I'm not seeing two various uh, individuals or families in the church anymore. And it's not because of the church or because of me. Sometimes it is, but not always. But it's because Brother A or Sister A has an axe to grind with Brother A or Sister A, B, and they refuse to work it out. They refuse to do it. They just want to be angry at each other, and they just don't even be, want to be in the same building or the same place with them, and I've had it with them, and I am done. Whereas the kind of love with which we have been loved, which we occasionally, probably frequently, more often than not, is to return to the cross with Jesus on it, and looking at that broken, suffocating body with all those wounds and the blood and the bleeding and the torture and the suffering that he endured before even getting put up on that cross and realize he is there with those marks and suffering and punishment on him. Forget the world sense. He's there because of me and my sins and how I offended a holy, sin-hating God. And here I am getting all in a snit because somebody, just another fellow sinner just like me, has offended me in such a deep, egregious way that I will have nothing to do with them and can't even stand to be in the same arena with them. There's a real problem there of, at best, immaturity, if not flat-out rebellion. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. I said at best it's called immaturity. Do we have past fireman up here yet? There we go. This is Randall. It says age 51, chronological age. Spiritual age, 18 months. A way, 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 way too common scenario in the church of Jesus Christ. We enter into this arrested development to where we can't even do the very basic, and it is the basic, the basic? What is the most preliminary, foundational, fundamental work that we can do? And that's to forgive those who have offended us. Why? Look at the cross. And here's the way I work on this with myself, right? Let's face it, you know, once every 15 years or so, you know, I can get an attitude with somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Right? But again, 
I sit there and think, really? This is that big of a deal to you? Well, yeah, it is as a matter of fact. Okay, look at the cross again. How, how it just takes, it takes that balloon of anger, frustration, whatever, and it just goes... And there's, I think, a reason why balloons, when they're deflating, sound like some other bodily function. Because that's about what the air inside, keeping it inflated, is worth. Be hospital to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in getting the most out of it that you can get for yourself. Oh, no, that's the reversed vision. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to ask Jim Higgs to come on up here. We are moving to 750. You've heard that before? Let us strive to abound more and more in the fruit to the glory of his name. Not the fruit that looks good, but the fruit that actually really is good. Let me have you stand. You know, when he opened... When he opened up, he was talking about a sensei. How many of you remember that? And I, he must have missed that class because it went something with uh, Mr. Miyagi. Wax on, wax off. <laughs> All right, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for a message that is, brings clarity and one that addresses things that are going on in our lives. What I love about our pastor, oh God, is his transparency, that he knows that we are struggling. He also has some of those same struggles. Father, I just pray that in Jesus' name, that if there is somebody here today that does not know you or has been holding back from you, Father, I just ask that they yield their life to you. And they ask In Jesus' name, take control of my life. I yield my life to you. Forgive me of the sin in my life. Help me to live a life for you. Father, for those that have been praying with the 750, we thank you, oh God, for them. We just ask that they move forward now with serving. And in Jesus' name, oh God, we ask. For ourselves, oh God, to move forward, to help younger people, oh God, that are struggling. We think of the graduates, oh God, every time we open up the newspaper, we see one that has gone through graduation and has never come home because of a bad accident. Father, we just ask in Jesus' name, you protect our young people. Give them the power to say, no, I'm not going to do that. 
I'm not going to go with that group. Thank you that they're here today. In Jesus' name.